This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. At McMaster's Innovation Park, there was just an announcement that the province is going to be investing $40 million towards a new manufacturing facility at that park. The idea is... The facility is going to become a part of the province's life sciences plan, which would hopefully lead to medical breakthroughs, gene and cell therapies, that kind of thing, and cures for different things. Making the announcement today uh, was Vic Fidelli, Minister of Economic Development, who joins us now. Thank you for the time today. Great to talk to you today, Scott. This, okay, so let's break this down. $40 million, as I understand it, is what the government is contributing to this, but this whole thing is, is it, did I read number, $580 million? Yeah, that's one company. Omnia Bio is uh, investing $580 million uh, in McMaster Innovation Park for a new uh, facility that will um, be a manufacturing facility. Uh, out of uh, the center, uh, the, what we call CCRM, the Center for Commercialization of Regenerative Medicine. It's a very exciting brand new investment in Ontario. Okay, now I'm going to admit right up front that I'm not nearly <laughs> smart enough to explain what this project is all about. I know you're an economy, you're a money guy, not a doctor, <laughs> but can you explain what this means in human English? Yeah, Scott, really this is uh, an opportunity for Companies who uh, develop uh, gene and cell therapy, um, for uh, this will be a company that will manufacture those products for other companies who develop them. So those research companies can stick to research and leave the manufacturing to a company like Omnia Bio. That's really what it is. They are, they are going to be a manufacturer of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, vaccines and uh, med- medications. Okay, so this is a th- this is the tangible result of the research that's done. Eventually, they will be those things will be made here. Would that be the idea then? Yeah, uh, it will be various medications that will be manufactured here uh, at McMaster uh, Innovation Park. This is certainly when you again when you talk about vaccines. Obviously, um, I, uh, there's not a person listening who has not heard endlessly about vaccines for the last little while. And one of the challenges that we've had, it's been very clear, it's been a weakness in this country to be able to produce our own vaccines. Has that been the main reason behind going ahead with the government jumping in and giving money to this, that that clear gap that we faced? Yeah, so our uh, strategy, so we announced our life sciences strategy today, and that, that really tells the global life sciences sector and the bio manufacturers that that uh, uh, that Ontario is open for business. So we're telling vaccine and medical manufacturers that we're open for business at uh, um, at Omnia Bio. It's uh, men, it's uh, medicines that they will manufacture there. 
But we, I mean, as I say, the, the, one of the real problems that we faced was, as I understand it, that Canada didn't have the capacity prior to now uh, to do something like this. When we needed to have the vaccines, we first had to go to China and then we had to find other places. The idea here is we're not going to be reliant on other places, hopefully down the road. Yeah, not at this facility, but today we announced the life sciences strategy that uh, tells those worldwide uh, uh, developers of things like vaccines and medical manufacturers that we in Ontario have the capacity to do this. At uh, Omnia Bio, they will be producing medicines for other companies. So they are, they are a contract development and manufacturing firm. I have no doubt that on your desk, um, probably every day, you have requests from different companies and labs and groups for funding. Why, why this one? What was it about this one and this thing that grabs your attention? Well, certainly the fact that they are, uh, with their partners, have an investment of $580 million to uh, commercialize uh, cell and gene therapy uh, right here in Hamilton, um, that they have that operating facility. So they, uh, it, it really was important that we uh, invest our uh, province's $40 million to help secure that facility here. You know, we've been very successful in the last couple of years. Sanofi, uh, invested a billion dollars to make their flu vaccine here in Ontario. We announced that about a year or so ago, and that facility is underway, a billion-dollar facility. Roche Pharmaceuticals uh, added a $500 million investment in Mississauga. 500 uh, engineers were are being hired there. So we're seeing real success in the life sciences sector, but we needed a strategy let them all know that we're there for them. We wanted Ontario patients to know that they're going to have access to you know, breakthrough technologies and innovative medicines right here in Ontario. We wanted early stage companies to know that there's capital support for them um, in Ontario-made companies. And we wanted people to know, university grads and research institute grads, that there's great paying jobs uh, for all of that world-class talent that we have in Ontario. Yesterday on the show here, we were talking about the federal budget that is coming up next week. That is not you, obviously, but also the federal deficit and and the need for government to make some tough choices that you can't necessarily do everything. So let, let's take that down to the provincial level here. Uh, this announcement today, how do you balance the desire to do what you're doing now with showing restraint? Because the, the provincial government also has a deficit. How do you balance what you're going to do and what you're not going to do? Well, we want to make sure that we uh, are, for instance, in the automotive sector, that we're protecting those 100,000 men and women that work in the auto sector. So we've made a lot of investments. For instance, in Hamilton, we invested a half a billion dollars in DeFasco to make green steel that's uh, getting off of coal and making steel from uh, electric arc furnace. Uh, that is to be able to make clean green steel for EVs. So that's an important investment. It protects those 100,000 workers in Ontario. In the life sciences sector, this is a real opportunity. It's going to put 250 people to work at, at uh, uh, Omnia Bio, um, making these, uh, uh, making these uh, gene and uh, cell and gene therapy 
uh, products, that's a really important signal that if a company like that is ready to invest that kind of money, that we ha- have what it takes in Ontario. We've got that that whole ecosystem that is uh, in the life sciences sector, and that's why we launched our strategy today. Uh, in addition to announcing the investment in uh, Omnia Omnia Bio. Vic Fideli, Minister of Economic Development, thank you for the time. They appreciate you taking a few minutes. Oh, that's a real pleasure. I really enjoyed that today. Thanks, Scott. I'll tell you what, if you are a golf fan, if you enjoy watching golf, your heart may have been fluttering the other day when you saw that that coverage, full presidential-like coverage of Tiger Woods' private jet landing in Augusta and Tiger coming down the ramp towards Augusta National Golf Course and the, the, the he may play in the Masters. This is, this is, I mean, forget everything else going on in the world. This is the news. He was preparing to play a practice round, but apparently he is listed on the starting lineup, whether he plays or not, for next weekend's Masters. I want to bring in Jason Logan, editor of Score Golf Magazine. Jason, were you were you a tingle with excitement upon seeing the great man descend the steps of his plane the other day? It certainly was, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> the speculation has been ongoing for a couple of weeks now, ever since he flew his caddy uh, down to Florida so that they could get out and practice, and not only practice at his home club in Florida, but also walk the course day after day and you know that's something he talked about when he was asked about a potential return was that you know it's one thing for him to get out of a golf cart and, and play with play alongside his son or play practice games at home but it's it's another to, to walk a golf course to walk 18 holes and, and to do so four days in a row so he's uh, obviously been preparing himself physically for this and now he's now he's doing the real thing at Augusta um, one of the hilliest courses out there so all signs are pointing to yes. I'm not sure why he would put in all this prep work if he wasn't going to play, but uh, certainly it's exciting stuff. Yeah, and Jason, when you say, and look, I, I know there are people listening who are not necessarily into golf, and they were like, "Really? He has to walk? What? I mean, what a hardship!" <laughs> I, I've done, I've done Augusta National, and I did it with a bad foot, as it turns out. The time I went down there to cover Mackenzie Hughes when he was there. And it is, it doesn't show on TV. And I don't know if you've been down there. It does not show on TV just how up and down and hilly and steep some of those holes are. It, it is a tough, it is a, it'll wear you out walking that course. Yeah, yeah, I have been down there and it is, it, it's like um, some of the holes out there are basically like if you were walking up and down ski hills. They really are. And television never does it justice. You know, the 10th hole, I don't know how many, how many, what the elevation drop is. And then, Holes like the ninth hole, where they're walking way up the hill. The seventh hole, the eighteenth hole. Um, it is definitely an arduous walk, more than any other golf course that the players play with regularity. Um, so it is a real thing. Now, saying all that, um, I think I was in the minority when when Tiger sort of downplayed the possibility of him coming back because I never believed him when he when he sort of indicated that you know it was going to take some sort of miracle for him to return. I just thought he was. Uh, underselling himself and and listen it's it's Tiger Woods and it's the Masters and and when he was making those comments he had three or four months to continue his rehabilitation and get ready for this and it's a tournament he's won five times and it's a course he can play with his eyes closed so I always suspected that he'd come back I, I wrote after he sort of gave that interview with Jim Nance and kind of downplayed it that I didn't really buy it that I thought he would come back and I'm crossing my fingers 
Um, not just so he'll prove me right, but just because it would be incredible to see him back at this tournament, um, you know, with full, full, full fans out there, we, you know, a complete sellout. We haven't seen that in a couple of years. It would just be um, hysteria and uh, it, it would yes. be fantastic. It's so exciting. That's a good word for it. Cause I was thinking about this, that I don't know what the number is that they allow onto the course. Let's say 25,000. It may be more, it may be less. I'm not sure what it is, but I would guess that let's say, let's round it off to 25,000, 24,864 people <laughs> would all be following Tiger Woods. If he was there, there would the only, even some of the wives of other players would say, forget <laughs> you. I'm following Tiger Woods. Yeah. I mean, like we don't have to even really go into depth about why either. I mean, it's, it's Tiger Woods. He's, he's, uh, you know, a 15 time major champion. He is arguably the greatest golfer of all time. Certainly he's played the the greatest golf. I would, I would still say Jack Nicklaus is the greatest golfer of all time based on their respective records. But I think he's also the most influential, influential golfer of all time. I mean, all of the guys that on tour now, they all grew up watching Tiger Woods. He turned so many of these guys on to the game, you know, these multi-sport athletes who decided to to focus on golf because Tiger Woods made it cool. And the last time we saw him at the Masters, he won it, you know, Mm -hmm. in 2019, which was a complete shock then. Um, I'm certainly not saying that if he does play, he's going to win this time around, but I don't think really that matters to most people. They just want to see the guy playing golf again because remember – you know, 13 or 14 months ago or whatever it is now, when we all got that alert about his car accident on our phones and saw how serious it was and saw some of the images, my goodness, we were just hoping that, first of all, he survived, and second of all, you know, he'd be able to walk and, and just play golf for fun again. And now mm-hmm. we're talking about him playing the Masters again. It's It's, it's crazy. Well, and Jason, when you say he turned these guys, a lot of them, onto golf, he did something else. He turned them all into multi, multi, multi millionaires because of oh, yeah. how he grew the game. Uh, he's still the guy. I mean, if you're CBS right now, you are throwing chicken bones and praying to whatever deity you believe in to, <laughs> that he is going to step on the course because CBS's ratings will be ma- and Golf Channel and others. I mean, it's 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 probably not even comparable what the ratings would be if he is or isn't on the course. Absolutely, because. You know, when, when he was in his heyday, and I always use this example, um, my late grandmother, who hardly ever watched golf in her life until Tiger Woods came along. And when Tiger Woods came along, if he was anywhere near the lead on Sunday, she was watching from start to finish. Mm. He tuned so many people into the game who were non-golfers because it was history in the making, right? We were watching potentially the greatest of all time at his chosen sport. Um, so he's incredibly influential. The ratings will be off the charts. And here's one other thing, and maybe this is in the back of Tiger Woods' mind too. Phil Mickelson is not going to be there. Right. His longtime foe sort of turned friend and maybe turned foe again. Wouldn't it be lovely if Tiger Woods just swoops in and everybody just completely forgets that Phil Mickelson <laughs> won't be a part of the Masters for the first time in some, I don't even know what it is, 25, 30 years. Hey, Jason, we got to run. I only have 15 seconds, but Tiger Woods doesn't risk doing anything to his reputation if he shows up and if he doesn't play well and he misses the cut, right? I mean, he's, he's beyond, if that were to happen, people would just chalk it up to his injury. Nobody says, oh, look, he's done or he's over the hill or anything, right? Uh, I don't think anybody cares. If, if we get to watch him for two days and he doesn't play particularly well, it's still going to be a successful return. That is Jason Logan, editor of Score Golf Magazine. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Okay, thanks, Scott. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Two very exciting things are happening in Ottawa tomorrow. Not winter loot. Is it winter loot? I don't know. Not, 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 nothing like that. Two exciting things happening in Ottawa tomorrow. One, the government will increase the carbon tax that we're going to pay on gas and other things. That's exciting. And the other, the politicians who work in Ottawa, hey, they, they're giving themselves raises tomorrow. Yeah, it's a it's an exciting day in Ottawa tomorrow. Seems about right for the way things have been going, I think. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins me now. Uh, Franco, you guys, it, it must be an exciting day for you guys tomorrow when all this happens. Well, I'm sure we'll be busy. Um, but yeah, I mean, exciting day in Ottawa, unless you're a taxpayer paying for all of this, right? Um, you know, I would say that it's a cruel April Fool's joke on taxpayers tomorrow, but it really feels like more of a slap in the face. You got MPs increasing their own pay while they're taking more out of our pockets with the carbon tax hike that you mentioned. But it doesn't even stop there. Uh, auto, federal booze taxes are also going up tomorrow on April 1st. So you almost got a triple whammy. MPs are pocketing bigger paychecks while taxpayers are going to be paying bigger carbon tax and also bigger boost taxes. Well, let's let's start with the salary increase because I know that everybody is happy for the MPs that they're getting more money. Um, <laughs> going into this, they were making, I mean, I don't know how they were getting by. An MP was making $185,800 a year. I, as I say, it's, it's amazing that we haven't had to find shelters for these people to put them up somewhere. Yeah. But now they're going up by $3,700 more a year. Um... I mean, honestly, I'm, we're, we're joking around about this, but it, everybody's struggling with prices and with inflation and with everything else. This seems like it would have been the absolutely, I mean, last year would have even more, but the perfect time for politicians to say, you know what we're going to do as a party, forget the whole group of them, as a party, one party stand up and say, we are going to pass on our raises or we're going to take those raises if we can't pass on them for some reason and donate all of it to a food bank or something. I just, I can't imagine, politicians are supposed to be all about being in touch with the people and knowing how to connect with, that would have been something. This, this, uh, this is just tone deaf to me. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, like read the room. Come on. And for two reasons in particular, I mean, number one is let's look at the taxpayers who they're supposed to represent. To your point, I mean, taxpayers have been struggling for almost, what, two full years of a pandemic that were chock full of private sector job losses, people who took big pay cuts, even small businesses who may have lost their business. And now they're going to have to face a higher bill to pay for these higher MP salaries. And, and, you know, they're already doing just fine. Thank you very much. Um, but then the second thing as well is just that these politicians, they don't deserve a raise. You've got the debt that is running out of control. You've got uh, higher cost of living and politicians are increasing the cost of living with their tax hikes and with their printing press. Um, so, yeah, these politicians don't deserve a pay raise. And you know what? It's not rocket science for them to stop these pay raises that they keep giving themselves. The Harper government did just that back in 2010 to 2013 in response to the 0809 recession. And also we found that politicians around the world took a pay cut at some point during the pandemic in New Zealand, for example, almost immediately after COVID-19 touched down there, you had their prime minister, you had their ministers, you had even their top bureaucrats come together and take a 20% pay cut to show solidarity with the struggling taxpayers who are paying their bills. Did anybody here do that? Did, was there a single politician in Canada that did? 
There were. There were. We found uh, from some city councils, actually, in Canada, reduced their own pay. Uh, Lethbridge, which is a smaller city in Alberta, for example, uh, city council took a 10% pay cut. There were some politicians in Halifax as well uh, that took pay cuts. You had one MLA in Alberta who was donating 20% of his salary and, and calling on all of his colleagues to do the same thing. Um, so there were some politicians in Canada who took a pay cut, but our members of parliament in Ottawa who are supposed to represent us, this is going to be the third time that they've given themselves a pay raise during this pandemic. So essentially gone up $10,000 during the pandemic. Well, between $10,000 for your backbench member of parliament, all the way up to an extra, about $21,000 extra for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau compared to their pre-pandemic salary. So these are huge pay raises, really, when you put it together and when you consider the context of all the, you know, devastation that so many Canadians felt in the private sector. Look, I, I know this has been said before. It's not a unique thought, but I don't know how many times over the course of the pandemic, and I'm sure you've said this before too, Franco, and you've brought this up. I don't know how many times during the pandemic when a politician stood in front of a microphone to tell us that we had to follow the rules, they said, hey, we're all in this together. That was the line. And I swear the next time a politician stands up and says, we're all in this together, I may do what that Iraqi journalist did with George Bush and throw a shoe at them because it's, we're not all in this together. We've never been all in this together. Together. And if there was any thought that that was the case, they would have done something to stem their raises because this is the easiest of all the things they could have done. The easiest yeah. of all they could have done. The easiest, the easiest, the easiest, the easiest, right? And, and, let's and the most, and the most symbolic, and the most and, symbolic. And also, here's another one. And symbolism, leadership is is important, but also it's about good policy making. And we've come to the situation, and I'm sure we'll get into the tax hikes, where you have these politicians that have become so financially divorced from the people that they're supposed to represent. And it's having real world bad policy implications. It almost seems like, well, hey, they're getting another raise, so they're just fine. So they're not in touch with the realities of the people that they're representing. And, you know, maybe that explains why they, why these tax hikes are going on, because they're not really feeling the pain of the pandemic. Uh, no, probably not. And as you say, the, uh, the carbon tax increase is also coming along at the same time. Now, it's not a huge amount. It's going to take it up to, I think it's 11 cents a liter is going to be going directly to the carbon tax. But again, it, it seems like it's more the symbolism almost of anything that is at a time when gas is going up and everything's going up. This doesn't, this just seems like it's rubbing salt in the wound. Well, and let's remember for, for people who are struggling and, and there's many people who are still struggling right now, an extra 11 cents per liter goes a long way, uh, especially if you live in a community um, where you have to commute to work, where you have to drive your kids, you know, maybe to their hockey practice or I guess baseball practices right around the corner. Um, like 11 cents per liter adds up. And if you have a minivan, that's an extra $8.40 every time you fuel up. And that's just the carbon tax, never mind the price of gasoline. But it's completely out of touch, especially when you look on what's going on internationally. And I'm talking about the tax relief that's happening internationally. South Korea reduced gas taxes by 20%. India's cutting gas taxes. Poland cut gas taxes. France and Spain cut electricity taxes. Uh, the United Kingdom just announced that they're cutting fuel taxes. You even have President Joe Biden who says he's considering gas tax relief. So you have all these other countries that are recognizing the pain that people are facing at the pumps and they're providing their citizens with relief, but our politicians in Ottawa are sticking us with a higher tax bill. 
Well, it is April 1st. Uh, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thank you for the time. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Yesterday, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I don't know what. And suddenly I see this thing pop up on Twitter. And it looked kind of familiar, and I thought, oh, what's, okay, let me go check that one out. Well, it was a, it intrigued me. So I clicked on it, and there was a website that it took me to. And I thought, oh, I think I've been down this road before. I think I've seen this before. But then I started scrolling through. I thought maybe I was onto an old website, but as I got down to the bottom, I see it had been updated. And then when I went back to the top, I noticed one very important change to this website. Originally, this website, which is called NHLforhamilton.com. Originally, it had said, make it seven. That was back during the Jim Balsillie days when he was trying to bring the Nashville Predators and the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Arizona Coyotes here. But now it says, make it eight. Someone has brought this back to life. Well, that person, his name is Marvin Dawn. He joins us now. Marvin, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am excellent, thank you. Make it eight. Bring NHL to Hamilton. Are are we ready for that? Is is this finally the time for the NHL in Hamilton? I would like to think it is. Um, I mean, the fans are always there in Hamilton. We're always going to have the fans, and the way it is down the states with the teams down there, some of them are struggling. I think it's a perfect time to get a team up here in Canada, and hopefully in, in Hamilton. I know it's um, make it eight, but. Um, I was thinking the other NHL team would be probably in Quebec City, so that's where I so got. So we may the... have to change it again to make it nine at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Why not? Why not, uh, Marvin? Tell me about. Now I don't know you. We've never met to the best of my knowledge. Tell me about you. Who is behind this push? Where, where do you live in Hamilton? What do you do for a living? All that stuff. I don't live in Hamilton. I live in Brampton, but um, I grew up in Hamilton. I lived there practically all my life. Um, my cousin played was the uh, captain of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Um, Jason? Gonna, uh, Jeff Daw was his name. Oh, Jeff, Jeff. Sorry, yes, Jeff, of course. Jeff Daw, yes. It's been a while. Yes, and, okay. Um, yeah, I've been a diehard hockey fan all my life. Um, I hate to admit it, but I like the, I love the Maple Leafs, and <laughs> I just uh, would love to see a rivalry between Hamilton and Toronto. And, you know, they have that out in Calgary. They have the Calgary-Edmonton, uh, you know, rivalry, and I think it would be perfect for uh Ontario to have the two teams. I know we have Ottawa and Toronto, but I think it'd be better if uh, Hamilton and Toronto were the the two main rivalries. What was it, Marvin, that spurred you to do this? There had to be something that made you say, I'm going to go back on and I'm going to start this up again. Was there some moment that made you think this was the time? Um, Not necessarily. I just, you know, I just think it's because of the... um, the teams down the states, like the Arizona, there they're struggling badly, and I just think you know, it'd be nice to have someone, some investor come along. I don't know who who would it be, but you know, they come along, and 
you know, we push this, we get the, the mayor behind it, we get the, the city of Hamilton behind it, and hopefully, you know, with uh, oh, I have a petition. If you go to the website, I have a petition for people to sign. So hopefully, you know, we get that motivation going and attract enough fans, and, and you know, start it up again and make make some noise. And that's that's my main goal. I want to, you know, I don't want to give up. What do you say, Marvin? To now, when you say you don't want to give up, I mean, what do you say to people in Hamilton who have been? down this path a few times, whether it was with Jim Balsillie or whether it was when Ron Joyce tried to buy a team and it went to Ottawa and Tampa or whether it was, you know, any number of other times that we heard about teams coming here. And what do you say to the people who finally have reached the point and they say, you know what, I just I just don't have it in me to get excited or to push for this again because I've just been beaten down too many times? Yes, I'm one of those people, so I know how, I know how they feel. So my message to them is, you know, never give up and, you know, just, just keep it going. And somehow, you know, one day we'll get an NHL team again. It's, um, I think the Leafs have to get involved, um, some, you know, with revenue sharing or somehow. And, and probably Buffalo too. But, you know, if we can work around that, I think, you know, now's the opportunity. Does the fact that we just had the Heritage Classic, I know the website, I looked at it, it's been updated and it includes something about the Heritage Classic. Was that was that something that made you think it could work when you have Buffalo and Toronto and a full house at Tim Hortons Field and the game went off really well and all that kind of stuff? Did that affect this? Yeah, that was the motivation. I mean, um, clearly seeing, you know, it was good. The, all the, you know, NHL, was, well, everybody, the NHL fans were watching that game. A lot of the Maple Leaf fans were watching the game and, just to see that many exciting fans at uh, Tim Hortons Field and, you know, watching the game and seeing how everybody was excited. Uh, I just think, you know, now's the time. What, what can I say? You know, we shouldn't give up on the dream. I know now's the time. Are. All right. All right. So last uh, thing, Marvin, we got to, Marvin, we got to run. But last thing, in your utopia, in your perfect world, because I'm sure you've thought through this as you do this, in your perfect world, how would this work? How would we end up with a team here? Uh, we'd have to get the really good investors and and somehow that they would have to work with the Maple Leafs in order to get the team in Hamilton. There's there's no definitely no way that, that um you know Toronto's not gonna go get the territorial rights to this area. It's just it's too much for them. So some way, somehow uh, get the mayor behind us and, you know, get get the backing that we need and just start out small again and you know, hopefully Hopefully we get that team here. Well, there's an election coming up, and maybe this becomes an election issue for the uh, mayoral race. Uh, Marvin Daw, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, if you're interested, you can go to the website, and I, I think, I should have asked Marvin, I think it's the same website that was being used, as I say, for Make It 7 that's just been updated. Um, uh, no, NH- I don't. It, it, is it not Marvin? Website. No. Okay. All right. So it's not. So NHL number four, NHL four Hamilton.ca. And you can go there and, um, there, the, the petition and everything else is on there. And you can, uh, you can decide if you are on board with Marvin and think this is the time, or if you think that that ship has sailed, but it is there and it is something to think about. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Many of us, many of us have grown up with Bruce Willis in whatever, whether it was moonlighting once upon a time with Sybil Shepherd on TV or uh, probably some will argue, I mean, some will say Pulp Fiction was his classic role. I'll go with Die Hard, but 
you know, whatever. There, there's been Bruce Willis has been all over the place for decades now. Uh, this week, his family announced, not even him, his family announced that he would be stepping away from acting, retiring, not even stepping away, retiring from acting due to the effects of aphasia. And I think an awful lot of people, myself included, said, yeah, you know, I've heard of that. But if you made me give you, or if you gave me a test and made me come up with an explanation for what that is, I'm reasonably sure that I would not have passed. It's a, it's one of those words that, again, we've probably caught wind of once upon a time, but not something, thankfully, that most of us have ever had to deal with. Elise Shumway is the manager of clinical and educational services and speech language pathologist and spokesperson for the Aphasia Institute, the Pat Arado Aphasia Center. She joins us now. Thank you for the time today. Uh, good afternoon. Really appreciate you doing this because, as I said, I think an awful lot of people have probably heard this somewhere along the way in passing, but really don't know a whole heck of a lot about what this is that we're talking about. Can you take a moment or two and explain generally what this means? Certainly. Uh, you know, aphasia is a communication disability or disorder. It results from damages to the uh, language parts of the brain. And it can happen either because of a stroke or a brain injury, a one-time incident. And then after that sort of cause, the aphasia will improve over time. There's also a degenerative type of aphasia called primary progressive aphasia, which starts off as aphasia and then involves more and more of the brain over time, and it starts to involve other um, thinking skills, concentration, and memory. But by and large, when people have aphasia due to stroke or brain injury, it's a communication problem and not a thinking problem. So people have trouble saying what's on their mind, but they know what they want to say, and it's really a barrier in expressing themselves that's the primary problem. So it doesn't affect their comprehension. You can talk to them. They can understand absolutely clearly what you're saying. It's just getting it back out to you. Well, they have sometimes they have problems decoding the words as well. So much the same as you would have if you were um, learning a second language. You're hmm. yourself. You have your own ideas, but you don't always understand the words being said to you. Aphasia has been likened to your first language becoming a second language. So okay. you have difficulty okay. understanding the words and expressing yourself, but you still have your thoughts and you're still you. Because one of the other, when I was hearing the explanations over the last 24 hours or so, one of the things that I wondered about, the, the, the description that I was getting was kind of, you know, we've all had those moments when there's a word on the tip of our tongue that we just can't find. And I was wondering if it's kind of like that only broadly, where it becomes not just a word, but a whole lot of words that you can't find. Well, that's right. It, you know, and aphasia can be mild, where it really is just some word-finding challenges, almost along the lines of what we all experience, all the way up to not being able to say words at all and having to rely on pointing and gesture and uh, using pictographic image, you know, photographs and illustrations to point to, to get your ideas across. So there's a range of severity. Um, like I say, it can be mild all the way to severe. It, it, I mean, I want to ask good questions here. I mean, uh, some of these things, I, I hope I'm not being offensive to any about this, but is this in the, is it in the dementia family? Is it a similar thing to dementia? Well, you know, it, the type of, of aphasia that that goes that t deteriorates over time is a type of dementia, 
But people who have a stroke or a brain injury that only causes aphasia, that's not in the dementia category, if that makes sense. So a pure aphasia, only aphasia, is not a thinking problem or a reasoning problem. It is purely a communication problem. Uh, it's the progressive kind of aphasia, probably like, although they haven't identified uh, Bruce Willis's type because of the ways it's been described in the media, it appears to be more the kind that gets worse over time. That, that type of aphasia is in the family of more of a dementia. For those who do get it from an injury, is there a part, where in the brain is the speech center? In other words, is there a specific type of head injury, uh, being hit from the back or from the side or from the front? And I don't even know if that would do it. Is, is, do we, is there any specific type of injury that would possibly lead to this more likely? Yes, it's typically on the left side of the brain. Uh, for those of us, most of us have our language centers on the left side of our, our brain. So that's where the language centers are. And that's where a stroke or a brain injury, if that happens, that's the part that would cause the aphasia. Is there any cure for this? Well, we don't talk about cure. We talk about living successfully with aphasia. And there are many things that people do to uh, compensate for the aphasia. The first thing is understanding exactly what each person's challenges and, and strengths are. Some people can still read. Other people can't as well. Other people have difficulties um, in uh, writing and they, others don't. Some people can use writing as a compensatory strategy. So the first thing is to find an expert, often a speech-language pathologist, who can find out exactly what the profile is and then start to work with the individual who has aphasia as well as everyone in their sort of communication environment, their family, their friends, their co-workers, and make sure everyone knows the strategies that they can use to help the mm. person get their ideas across and understand what others say to participate in conversations. Elise, I'm already over time, but just really quickly, because I think a lot of people would want to know this. If you are one of those people who finds it hard sometimes to find words, is there a way to discern whether what you're dealing with is just aging, because that happens to everybody, and aphasia? Is there a distinction? Well, there is. It's really severity, and it's also cause. We all, you know, as you get older, there are word-finding challenges, but it's not as severe as an aphasia. So the first thing would be go to a family doctor and then get to a speech and language expert and find out exactly what's going on. Elise Shumway, uh, very interesting. Thank you for the time today. Thank you. The average Canadian songwriter in income from streaming platforms, digital platforms in 2021 made $67. <laughs> Let me bring in Eric Alper, who is a music publicist, a writer, a guy who is around the industry in all different ways. Uh, Eric, $67, it, it doesn't sound too good. Well, no, that's because you forgot the 14 cents. So <laughs> Sorry, yes, the 14 cents, right. 14 cents. Yeah, look, man, if you're going to, you know, <laughs> look, it's a, that is a really scary low number, and I get it. But there's a couple of things that might change how people think about that. You know, what it doesn't take into consideration is how many artists we're generating, say, $100,000 or a really good living because there might be five. You know, there might be Drake and The Weeknd and Justin Bieber and, and um, Shania Twain and Brian Imes and maybe a couple more, and then everybody else is getting nothing. But that seems to be what it's like 
all around the world. In fact, out of the 74 million songs that are available up on, say, Spotify, um, 16,000 artists made more than $50,000 of royalties. That's not a lot either. It's probably better than nothing, but, you know, $67 sounds exactly right, considering how many artists from Canada are on Spotify and other music streaming services, how many of them have released more than two songs, and how many of them have more than four friends after they go to them to find ways to get their music heard. It's, it's, uh, it's a very strange time, that's for sure. The, the argument, though, is music is more than almost anything else. Art, music, it's a meritocracy. If people like what you produce, if they like what you pump out, they'll pay for it and you'll make money. If they don't like it, if they're not willing to put their money where their ears are, you won't make money. And that's just, that rewards those who do really well and doesn't reward those who don't. Yeah, and, that, and that's life, you know. Um, and also, I'll add to that, it, it will reward those who continuing to realize that they need to release music every month. Um, it's not, you know, it's not the same as releasing an album in 2022 and then your next album in 2025. I think only Adele can do something like that. <laughs> but out of the 8 million artists that are on Spotify, 5.4 million of them, just about more than two-thirds of them, have released less than 10 songs. So it means that there are a lot of artists out there that aren't treating this or music as a way of life. They're not treating it as their first income or that they may not be treating it as maybe those artists in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s that we grew up listening to that didn't have a plan B. They slept on people's floors. They were going, you know, they were traveling from coast to coast on like nothing except for gas money. I don't know how many artists are still willing to do something like that. I think for a lot of the artists, Music is almost something that they do, but maybe they're not actually looking at something to make this a career. And that's, I think, more discouraging to me, who kind of works in this industry, who is looking always for the future of, of musicians. The government, of course, wants to get involved now to help out. And I, mean, I think their motivation, their, their sentiment may be correct here. But what they're talking about doing now is telling the streaming services in Canada, or at least even American or foreign streaming services that w offer services in Canada, you have to push Canadian music. You have to put it up at the front and make it more visible and make it more obvious. It's kind of kind of like the old radio CanCon, but yeah. for 2022 when we get to pick our own. Is that at a time when you pick everything yourself, is that does that have any chance of actually working or is that just to make yourself feel like you're doing something kind of move? No, I think it actually has. I think it'll make a really huge difference. Um, I think something is lost in the last generation or, or, or the generation of music lovers that are say eight to 18 years old who aren't listening to the radio and no slight to radio stations anywhere in this country. But I don't know how much they're listening to the radio to find out new music anymore. And the music discovery is now on 
TikTok. It's now on your friend's Spotify playlist. It's now through Tastemakers, through YouTube, or through Instagram. So the ability to have Canadian content, I think, has been lost in the way that you and I grew up on listening to artists that probably would not be around if it wasn't for Canadian content, or at least get their start. People like The Spoons or Men Without Hats or... Um, um, you know, uh, Blue Rodeo, um, all of those artists that were coming from the area um, got their first spins and, and play on much music because Canadian content rules forced stations to play 35% of it. So they needed content all the time to play it. I think if there are companies like Netflix or Spotify or YouTube that somehow make their a lot of money in this country, yeah, I think that they should be required to somehow start pushing Canadian content like the way that it does. It doesn't breed, you know, it doesn't breed boringness. What it does is it allows people to just get a little bit of a leg up in the shadow of America and the UK, which are so dominating, especially when you're talking about a country as small as we are in Canada. Mm. That is Eric Alper. Always love having you on, Eric. Thanks for the time today. No problem. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Yesterday, around this time of day, we were learning about a very unfortunate, very sad situation that was happening at the corner of Maine and Dundurn. Just... I don't know if we count that as downtown Hamilton or just on the fringes of downtown Hamilton, but you know where it is. Uh, a 14-year-old girl was hit while walking home from school by a car. She is now in critical but stable condition as uh, the last update that we have. We hope that it's still the same or better at this point. But that intersection has had its share of accidents over the years. In fact, it's here for the most accidents over a five-year period from 2015 to 2019. We're clearly out of that window right now. Nonetheless, it's an area that has had some problems over the years. And it is, um, there are now questions perhaps about should something be done there? And if so, what could be done there? War, uh, Maureen Wilson is the counselor for Ward 1. Uh, she joins us now. Maureen, thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thank you. So uh, looking at those numbers, I, I think we have to say, okay, there's something with that intersection that makes it dangerous. Do you have a theory on what it is? Is it because cars are just coming off the highway right there? Is it because of something that's in the design? Do we know what the reason would be that intersection might have problems? Before I respond to that very good question, I would just like to extend my deep, deep um, concern and sympathies to the young woman who was struck and to her family. Um, I've been thinking of them as a mother of three children. Uh, uh, the going to school in the morning and coming back from school in the afternoon it has always been a source of uh, concern. And I know it's a source of concern um, that is shared by many mothers and um, residents of not only Ward 1, but beyond. But uh, Scott, thoughts and prayers are not enough in this city and for this city. As you stated, that intersection, uh, Maine and Dundurn and King and Dundurn are year after year after year, at least for the last decade, 
on the top one and two positions of collisions, cars, pedestrians, and cyclists. Um, we have been tittering around the edges, trying to um, make slight adjustments, but that's not good enough. And there has been, um, beyond my scope of understanding, but those two intersections have been, um, there's been video analytics been going on for the last number of months, secured by city staff. And they're looking at how do the cars move? Uh, what are the problems? And they're soon going to be securing a consultant. And that consultant will be charged with providing the city with a no holes holes bar give us your give us what you see to be the problems and let's deliberate and give us the solutions and it's um, no longer going to be about tinkering around the edges well and you know i like i i I'm glad the consultant will be doing it because I certainly can't guess. I mean, there's some things that you wonder about, as I say. I mean, it's it's maybe ironic that both of those are streets that are either coming off the highway or going onto the highway. Um, I, I don't know if that's got anything to do with it right near those intersections. I I don't see that the intersection themselves is that much different from hundreds of others around the city. But uh, I mean, as I say, it's, it's, something is going on there, it would seem. Whatever it is, something is going on there. It's a, it's a question of, of design, and it's also a question of values and who we value. And uh, much of our infrastructure in this city was expanded and turned into one way in the 50s, and the primacy was getting from one point to the other as efficiently as possible. And it, it is arguably very efficient, um, but efficiency should never trump quality of life, livability, and the ability as a child, as a senior, as an aunt, as an uncle, uh, to walk safely and not has to have to risk your life uh, when crossing any intersection, including this one. It's a you just raised something that I had not considered at all, and I don't know if I don't know the idea of that this is a one-way street. Is, do you believe, or is there reason to believe that if Main Street was or King Street was to be two ways? that the two-way traffic would be more, that would be safer? So I, I will leave that, uh, the design deliberations to the experts, but I, I would respond to you this way. Um, there is a way in which you can make one-way streets extremely safe and livable um, with the right um, design elements. But when you have a one-way street that is four to five lanes in which the lights are timed such that it puts the emphasis on efficiency. And when you have a highway, because that's what it is, it's a multiple lane highway cutting through some of our more vulnerable neighborhoods and the heart of our downtown runs right in front of our city hall, the civic heart of our downtown. Um, I think that's telling of, a mis of misguided priorities. I think this community is absolutely ready to have that conversation on who and what do we value. And, and this city, is it deserves that conversation. And after um, too many collisions, too many injuries, too many fatalities, we need to get on with the job. And, you know, th that is obviously the priority with the discussion today. But, you know, as we even talk about this, there's a there's another possibly opportunity here, because when uh, assuming that LRT does go ahead, 
Mm -hmm. uh, there's already been talk about how congested or difficult it might be to get down King Street when you get close to the highway. A two-lane street or two-way street on King and Main, uh, I mean, we're, we're blue-skying here, but I mean, that, that could be an answer to some of that problem, as well as possibly making it safer. Yes, absolutely. The, one of the, um, the possibilities, the bright possibilities that come with LRT are, are the ability to redesign our streets. And reimagine our streets um, and provide for more active points um, for, uh, for every user along that line. And in, it's my opinion that Maine um, has to be on the table as part of LRT, for sure. Um, and it, the primacy must be put on the, the neighborhoods. Um, and downtown is, should not be a place in which you have to where driving through it should be the priority. That is Ma Maureen Wilson, Ward 1 Counselor for the City of Hamilton. Uh, thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. I appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, I, as she just said, I mean, our best wishes to the girl, to her family. And also uh, there was a 37-year-old woman who died in Stony Creek going down the escarpment in an accident yesterday. I mean, these are these are people who have families and have loved ones. And, you know, you, they they these stories can get very easily just you know you look at them and you go oh, okay they're real people and they are these are at least i think discussions to have what the solution is is not easy i don't think and i don't think it should be made to sound easy but they are discussions to have for sure if there are places that seem to have a higher than normal number of accidents it is a discussion to have and the idea of two-way streets down main and king boy there is a discussion to have and maybe we'll do that tomorrow or the next day or Monday or whatever, because that is, you know, especially there has been a lot of concern when, when the LRT goes down King, right down the middle of the street. And when you get to Dundurn, if you can picture it, you're on King. One lane goes to the highway to Toronto. One lane goes to the highway to Brantford. The LRT is down the middle. There's already been concerns about how, it, how are people going to get by there? Well, what if Main Street was suddenly two ways? What if King was two ways? I, it's an interesting discussion. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I was having a conversation with someone the other day. Uh, they have been trying to buy a house. They've been trying to get into the housing market. And look, it's not a story that is unique. Everybody who's in this position is finding, I think, a similar thing. It's like, how in the world, with the prices and the way things are rising, how do I get in? Well... One idea that is now out there that we could use to try and slow things down, maybe stop the rapid, rapid, rapid growth, is increasing the foreign investor tax. Rather than paying 15% if you're a foreign investor looking to buy a house, we're going to pump it up to 20%. That'll do it. Will it? Let's bring in Eric Cam. He's a professor of macroeconomics, monetary economics, international monetary economics, and implications of monetary growth with Ryerson University. He joins us now. Thanks again for joining us. Really appreciate it. Scott, you know, once again, you've been far too modest with the listening audience. I took a poll of some of your profs, and apparently <laughs> on more than one occasion, you were voted student of the month. And I said, well, what is that? And they said he showed up about once a month. Yeah, that's, I thought you meant for my work at the fast food place. Um, yes, Eric came, of course, uh, a Ryerson prof. I am a Ryerson grad. We uh, we are in 
whatever that word is in kismet, I guess will be the word we'll use that. Uh, look, is this a, is this idea of bumping up the foreign investor tax or whatever we're going to call it by 5%? Is this going to do anything? It's going to do absolutely nothing. I mean, it's absolutely pure fantasy bordering on political lunacy. Uh, you, this is the types of things you say, Scott, when you're out to win an election and you know that there's a hot button issue like housing. And I don't mean to be too negative about this. Yes, the housing market is red hot, but it is uh, it is not a bubble because bubbles don't last for 20 years and the market's been hot for the better part of two decades. Putting a tax on foreign ownership, I mean, would it have a, a, a negligible um, bordering on you know, very small decrease in the amount of foreigners looking to buy homes in Canada? Sure. But guess what? We have a bigger issue. And I didn't use the word problem. It's an issue. It's immigration. And to this point, about 85% of all people who immigrate to Canada immigrate to the 416-905 area code and a 5% tax on, Im on immigrant owners or foreign ownership is going to do nothing compared to that type of demand when they're not building any new houses. So uh, I hate to be, again, too negative, but this is just political rhetoric uh, during an election cycle. Does this, um, I, maybe I misunderstood, if you are an immigrant who comes to the country, do you have to pay this tax? I thought this was for people who maybe lived offshore and were buying it as an investment. Yes, I think I misspoke. So yes, if you come here and buy a property, you're fine. This is people that are living outside of Canada that want to okay. own okay. The basic principles of either renting or holding on and then selling at a profit. And what I'm saying is, is you know, you can slap a tax on that and any tax, of course, will have a, a, a downward drag um, on spending. But again, that that percentage would be so small, so small compared to immigrants coming to Canada, choosing to live in the 416-905 area. When you couple that with the fact that there is really no new supply of houses over the last 10 years, you're just looking at the two most basic economic concepts, really high demand, really low supply. And there's only one direction, Scott, for prices to go. I mean, if, if the government believes that this is a useful tool and it must think to some degree, or maybe, it, as you say, it's just a, a, an easy thing to do. If you can do 20%, why not do 80%? Why not do 100%? Make it, you got to pay double for the house in order, and that will scare some people off, maybe. I, I, I don't know. As I was reading this, I was like, okay, why stop at 20% if you're trying to scare people away? Well, you don't have to. And of course, the higher the number goes, you can have, again, a small effect on the economy. But, you know, in general, when you're dealing with any type of market, when you start to have ridiculous levels of taxation, like you're talking about, and I know you're just being hypothetical. You know what happens is there start to there starts to grow gray and black markets. And so all you'll get are foreigners who somehow make connections with people living in Canada to buy on their behalf. And again, you say, oh, does that really happen? It happens all the time. But like most black markets, we don't have data on it because no one's going to walk up to a drug dealer and say, can I have a list of your prices and quantities? <laughs> no one's going to find out from foreign owners who the people are within Canada doing the buying for them. So, you know, where there's a market, there's a black market. And it's going to have, again, negligible to no effect. Fair enough. And, and for the record, I want to be clear to anyone listening, I'm not proposing for anyone from a, you know, who lives here, who's a, an immigrant or a Canadian or anyone else who's going to live. I, I do not want government starting to add taxes. Uh, that was, that was a theoretical, um, <laughs> 
Don't want well, that Scott, we both know no no good serving Ryerson graduate would call for higher taxes. <laughs> no, no way. But so, but what do we do then? I mean, look, the, the, it appears as though the situation that is facing governments is not something that governments can almost do anything about. I mean, it, it, is there a magic bullet that a government could pull out and say we can fix the housing problem? I don't see it. No, there is no magic bullet there. In fact, it's interesting because it goes back and forth between is it an economic issue? Is it a political issue? Um, it's a little bit of both of an issue. But in terms of a magic bullet, no, the only thing you can do, the only thing that's ever worked to um, to cool off a housing market is to increase the price. And that's the interest rate. And so the Bank of Canada has said that we're going to raise their their prime rates, you know, it just went up 0.25 and it's going to surely go up another 0.25 in the next little while. And now that will have a stronger effect to try to cool the market, but not to sound like a broken CD or whatever the kids listen to today. When you have the numbers of people buying and the limited supply, all you're going to do is throw water on a very, very hot fire. So no, there really is no great solution. And if you really want to bring down the prices, you'd have to raise the rates of interest so high that it would just throw other aspects of the economy into hilaria. So unfortunately, the housing market is what the housing market is. And so Toronto just looks like New York, looks like LA, looks like Chicago in other deep urban centers. Namely, you're going to have to be super wealthy to live in the core. Well, we got to run, but there, I mean, there is one other way to do it and you've alluded to it already. It's just that nobody wants to do that. And nobody supports the idea, which is say, okay, we're going to cut immigration. And yet, you know what, th this comes down to the decision of, well, what's more important to us And Canada traditionally and always has been welcoming to immigrants. And so I don't think there's a big appetite to say, Hey, we can solve our housing problem. If we just close the borders, I don't, I don't see any appetite for that. The uh, United States of America had a president try that and he wasn't too popular. So you can rest assured, no matter what I think of the sitting prime minister, he's he's not that stupid to try that angle and nor should he. That is not the foundation on which Canada stands. No. Uh, Eric Cam from Ryerson University. We always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. Stay healthy, Scott. We have now heard suggestions that we are heading into the sixth wave or in the sixth wave. And again, it's almost so difficult to keep track now, but that's where we are, the sixth wave of COVID. Should we be concerned about this or how concerned should we be about this? Dr. Colin Furness is an, an epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information and the Dalai Lama School of Public Health. Thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks. This was predicted. It was predicted by the government that once we remove some of the restrictions and we're able to take masks off and things like that, that the numbers would go up by a little bit. Should we be worried by what we're seeing? We made a big mistake taking off masks. There's, there's no question. Uh, even bigger than I thought, actually, and I, I was already really worried about it. Um, yeah, we've, we've, we've created a perfect storm, and, and this really was avoidable, and I think that's the tragic part. When you say the cases are going to go up as a government, what you have to or really ought to be saying is, and once they start 
going up, we're going to have no control because that's what that's how communicable disease behaves. And we've made this mistake wave after wave after wave, waiting for it to take off, and then having to do drastic lockdowns that nobody likes and that have been so very destructive. What you've got to do is prevention. You you've got to get out actually ahead of the wave. Think surfers, um, and 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 then you can get where you're going. So we've done it again. We after two years and 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 plenty of lessons to be learned. We decided to open the door travel-wise to a new subvariant that we know is way more contagious, that we know has wreaked havoc in places like Denmark and the UK, um, and, and, and we know what that looks like. And because we're not doing any surveillance testing, we don't really know. We haven't really had a very good read on cases. So we're really blind. We know this is coming. And on top of those two things to say, now let's take off our masks just for when it arrives. I, I couldn't really imagine worse timing unless we wanted a big wave, and I know nobody does. So it really was a bad, it was a bad decision, and, and I think it was a bad political miscalculation. With this coming, the, I think for a lot of people, the question, and, and I don't know if it's a fair question or not, but I think a lot of people are saying, all right, look, I've had it. It was like the flu or it was like the cold. My concern is going to be if we're seeing this turn into hospitalizations and people getting very, very sick. Do we know yet? Is there indication, is there evidence that what we're seeing right now is going to lead to people, more people in hospital? Or is this just you're going to get it and you're going to be okay because it's going to be like the flu? Hospitalizations are going up, and part of the reason is people who are more prone, who are who really had to have some, something to be worried about, are having a harder time not catching it, just because it's more contagious. So its reach is further. So people who know better than to than to do risky things uh, may get sick anyway, and so it's going to get those folks. For anybody who's not vaccinated, and let's remember, we've got 1.1 million kids under the age of 19 who are not vaccinated, not at all. They're at risk. There is no question they're at risk. So that's that's the number one piece. The number two piece is that hospitalizations measure what COVID does to you that's visible. You have a respiratory distress. It's hard to breathe. That's that's um, that's extremely uncomfortable and, and, and dangerous for many. Uh, that's what puts you in hospital, But and, and, and that's awful. But what COVID is doing in the background, even for people who just experience a mild cold, is vascular damage, brain tissue loss. And so to say, well, I've been through COVID and I've had that, you know, my answer is, okay, so your body may have sustained a lot of damage and you're just not aware of it. Do you want to double down on that damage? And the answer really ought to be no. So having had COVID and having had a mild case doesn't actually put you in a great place in terms of what you might then be facing next. So I really want to reframe this for people. Yes, it looks like a respiratory virus, but it isn't. It's a virus that may present in an ugly way or may not. And if you're vaccinated, you're less likely to have a severe case. But in the background, it can be doing some pretty bad things. And we're learning a lot about that now. And it's it's not good news. There were parts of Canada that decided to take these restrictions off before we did. And I wonder when other places start to remove the restrictions, when other parts of the world start to remove the restrictions, do you believe that people would have continued to follow the restrictions if, if a government had said, look, I know that BC is not doing this. I know so-and-so a place is not doing this, but we're going to do this. Or would people have said, that's nice. I'm not going to anymore. I mean, had we reached a point where people were just at the end of the rope and would have stopped anyway? Well, that's entirely possible. It's hard to know whether 
public protest and the convoy made government say, oh, I guess we just have to stop trying to do this now, or whether the governments, various governments, started to signal, hey, I think it's election season and it's a good time to say good things that people want to hear, so let's trigger that. And I actually don't know which way it went. But, I mean, we, we have to look at public messaging. For, the, for starters, we should be talking about protections and not restrictions. Lockdowns are, are restrictions. Masking is, is protection, and it's protection for, for people, a large part of the population that actually really, really needs that. So I think it's possible to do that. The other thing is living with COVID has been sold to us as let's drop all restrictions and mass infect everybody and there's going to be a lot of harm. That's not living with COVID. That's surrendering to COVID. Living with COVID involves first standing up and saying, and I want one provincial government to stand up and say this, maybe the others will follow. COVID is airborne. We need to treat it like an airborne virus. We need to do things like mandating indoor air quality standards, plugging in a HEPA filter, that's sustainable. No one's going to get tired of the HEPA filter. That's the sort of thing we need to be doing in order to stay safe. So we've got to recognize COVID for what it is. It does horrible bodily harm. It's in the air. And we know how to make people safe from this. And it doesn't involve locking people up. So I think we could just start doing it the smart way and in a preventative way. And then we wouldn't have to face down the question, the really good question that you ask, you know, are people just going to be fed up with this anyway? That's, that's, we're doing it wrong when we have to answer that question, and we've been doing it wrong pretty heavily, pretty consistently for two years. Dr. Colin Furness, always appreciate you taking time. Thank you for doing this today. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, the discussion about tent encampments in public parks. Um, it's been going on for a while now. And it, yesterday, council voted on what to do about this. Unsurprisingly, I think, and I'll, I'll ask Councillor Jason Farr, Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, who joins me now. Unsurprisingly, Jason, um, this thing got kind of heated. And, and I, as I say, unsurprisingly, because I kind of have expected this all along, it's been sort of brewing towards this, but there is a strong difference of opinion among councillors. Uh, yeah, well, 11 were like-minded, uh, four were not, and I'd say two especially uh, were quite vocal, and, you know, they're elected to uh, represent uh, their constituents, and their opinion is that their constituents feel differently than the majority of us, and that's fine. I mean, for the most part, I thought it was fairly respectable, and there was no surprises for me as far as where the debate went. So what ends up, what was voted on for those who maybe missed it or, I mean, this, as I say, this has been going on for a long time. The, the two proposals, I guess, I'll throw that one out there. One is enforcement. One is finding something else to help these people. Uh, Well, before we go to the enforcement part, what was the other alternative that was being proposed here? Well, the other alternative that was voted on successfully too, was a little over $300,000 to create a pilot that, uh, brings to getting feedback uh, here, Scott, sorry, that brings a, uh, essentially a new division to the city of Hamilton. And that division is called the Encampment Team, uh, but it's a director. Okay, I think what we're going to do, um, Will, can we, or, uh, Will, can we try and reconnect with Jason? Because we're not getting any of that. So we'll, we'll try and get a better connection. Um, the, the issue here is, and again, it's a, it is a hot button issue for sure in the city of Hamilton, because we have whether in the parks or whether in streets, we have had people, homeless people or people who, for whatever reason, have decided not to use the facilities that are available. In some cases, some can't. Some have decided that they would prefer to stay in out on the street. Uh, this has led to a strong difference of opinion. 
This has led to a strong difference of opinion, as I say, because on the one hand, you've got neighbors and you've got other people saying, look, you can't be having people just popping up tents wherever they want and doing whatever they want. And others saying, yeah, but enforcing, just pushing people away isn't going to resolve it either. Sorry, Jason, we lost you there. We'll try again. Uh, Jason Farr with us. So the, the option was we can enforce or what was the other option that was being pushed? The option that passed was uh, creating a new encampment team, a new division of the city of Hamilton, which essentially uh, validates uh, the other option that we're talking about, about bringing in four new um, uh, bylaw officers to address uh, enforcement and do it the same way as every other city. It, it validates that this is a major issue. I can't remember the last time we created a new division in the city of Hamilton. I think, I mean, look, there are people who are going to be on both sides of this debate. What about, so we've got the, this now more enforcement, but is it not going to lead to, you enforce it, you get rid of someone? Are they not just going to pop up somewhere else? Is this not creating a situation where enforcement is not just going to create work for itself? Well, if it's anything like every other city that I examined, no. Over time, uh, you actually have compliance it's a lot easier to gain compliance. Remember, Scott, we're focused on parks and a few public places with this. This is not an issue where we're worried too much down the road that it's going to get worse because there's no evidence of that in all the other comparator cities. In fact, what generally results from what I have assessed, and no one has argued with me on either side of this, is that it actually mitigates those issues that are well publicized and talked about over the last two years. Because ultimately, what we've been doing is what no other city has been doing, and the impacts are the results. Impacts that were recognized in the Superior Court injunction attempt that was failed. Impacts that uh, more and more residents have shared with us. That if you allow encampments to be entrenched, as our former process prior to last night's uh, ratification, allows entrenchment, you're the only city, and that causes serious issues in terms of uh, how we manage things. It creates greater problems. The argument against this, though, is that you're showing a lack of compassion, that you're by having enforcement, you're not showing compassion to these people. What would you say to that? Well, I would simply say that there are a lot of cases where we can demonstrate we are better at housing the homeless in Hamilton than anywhere else in Canada. It's well-documented. We are nationally recognized. And that is our mandate, and that's what people keep missing in this argument. It's a housing-first mandate. 1,060 houseless individuals during this pandemic were housed in Hamilton. We're very, very good at it. As Justice Goodman put it, uh, Scott, like, when he talked about that court case and when he made his summation, the ruling spoke to the downside of providing an, an out or an option for houseless individuals to remain living in these inhumane and unsafe conditions. There's a downside when you leave it to go months and months at a time. That means you're leaving someone living in these deplorable, unsustainable situations without washrooms, with all the other things that unfortunately occur in many cases, not all. And that is something that was even pointed out in the Superior Court decision that landed in our favor. It, it, it's better to say, take your options, because there, this isn't an option. Just like every other city, this isn't an option living in a park. That is Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr. I really appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for doing this.
Well, it's a citywide problem. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.